Marisa Brown, Senior Principal Research Lead for Supply Chain Management at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today I'm here with Dr. Carla O'Dell, Chairman of the Board of APQC, and a longtime friend of mine, to talk about what's in store for supply chains in 2022. Welcome to the podcast, Carla. Thank you, Marisa. I'm really glad to be here today. Uh, You know, it's in the news, and you'll say some more about that, but I would like to play the role of the average Joe today who wants to understand more about the issues behind the supply chain headlines. And we'll teach you as the, you know, you're the pro and I'm the average Joe, and, uh, and we'll move from there. So back to you. Thanks, Carla. And before we get started, I want to let our listeners know that we want to hear from you about supply chain disruptions and the impact on your life. So please click the link in the description to take a 10-minute anonymous survey. Now let's get into it. We're at a time when supply chains are just all over the news every day. Late packages, shortages, we see all of the pictures of containers stacked up at the ports. It's often not a happy story. But, you know, one of the things that we don't hear so much about is returns or even reverse logistics. And what we found may actually shock or alarm you. So today we're going to dig into a little bit behind the hype in the headlines. And Carla, thanks for helping to provide some clarities on these issues as we look forward. Okay, well, let's start with pop quiz, Marisa. Do you know what January 31st, 2022 was besides the last day of January? I give up. I'm not sure. Okay, that was the last day to return many of the things that we bought on Amazon for Christmas and Hanukkah. Uh, So this unhappy story, I'm a Joe, and I'm going to end up returning some of that stuff. And in fact, my brother was supposed to get a birthday cake early last week, and it never arrived, so guess what we're going to be returning is a moldy birthday cake. Um, oh, no. We'll, we'll throw it out and just get a refund. But what happens to all that stuff we send back? That is such a good question, Carla. Because when you say the words reverse logistics, it sounds like a dry topic that only supply chain people really care about. And actually, though, all those holiday returns from gifts that didn't fit or were the wrong color or birthday cakes that arrived after the birthday, they have to go somewhere when you send them back. And the question is, what happens to all that stuff that people returned after Christmas? And here's some of that awful information that we found. And, you know, the bottom line, too, is there really is no such thing as free returns. We often as consumers think, oh, that's awesome. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. But the reality is that someone in the supply chain somewhere along the way is paying the cost of that return. So, you know, our military uses the acronym BLUFF, bottom line up front. And I'll give you the bottom line up front on these returns. The vast majority of them end up in the landfill. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. We oh, that is not what I had in mind. Right? And, you know, I learned a new word when I was doing some research for this conversation, wardrobing. And that's where people will order the same thing in three different sizes to see which one fits, and then they return the other two. And I'm guilty of doing that, along with, I'm sure, many of our listeners. But what we don't realize is that those other two that we return, they often don't go back on the shelves. They often end up in the landfill. 
And I'll tell you that the scope of this problem is mind-boggling. So last year, 2021, the National Retail Federation said that retail sales exceeded $4.6 trillion. That's with a T. <laughs> Sometimes I have to you know, double-check my spelling here. $4.6 trillion compared to 2020 at only $4 trillion. That's a big number. But even bigger and more mind-blowing is that the value of returns for last year were more than three-quarters of a trillion dollars. More than $761 billion in the U.S. on returns. And that's more than 16% of sales returned. And in the course of this conversation, let's not even get into the 16 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions from those returns. I mean, and the fact that 10% of those returns are fraudulent, where people are returning things that weren't defective, maybe they were stolen, their receipt was counterfeit. I mean, this is a huge number. Oh, I'm, uh, let me stop you there. I got a bag of stuff sitting by the front door that I was going to uh, you know, take back to the store. I think I'm just going to take it to Goodwill. Is that a reasonable option? That certainly is one option. And I'll tell you, I read a quote from a professor at Arizona State University the life of a return is a very, very sad path. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and part wow. of that is because an estimated quarter of returns are thrown away. So if we can all figure out ways to keep our returns out of the landfill, I think we're in a better position. And, I, and one of the things that determines whether the returns that you've got sitting by your door go back on the shelf or not is the value of them. Because... You know, we see it as, oh, it's a brand new shirt, you know, two of them, different sizes. I can return them. But the companies have to figure out, is that product actually worth the cost of paying for the shipping it back? And then somebody has to inspect it. They can't take your word for it that it's in pristine condition. They have to assess the damage. Maybe they have to clean it, repair it, test it, make sure it still works if it's electronics or things like that. And all of those activities cost money and require labor, which we know both of which are in short supply these days. So yeah, we create about 6 billion pounds of landfill waste a year just in the U.S. Wow. And a lot of that comes from returns. So we really, I mean, anything you can do to either not purchase it in the first place or donate it, um, and in looking at what companies do when you do return this stuff, sure, there's the option, especially for things like pricier clothes, it is sometimes worth it for them to clean it and put it back on the shelf. Um, also, you've probably seen that they sell refurbished or used goods, maybe an open box in electronics. That's another way that some of our returns get back into the cycle. Also, there's the liquidation market where companies will auction off unwanted inventory, but they get pennies on the dollar for the value in that case. Um, and then here's another nice phrase, energy recovery. <laughs> they burn returns. <laughs> so I, I am encouraged though by some increasingly new initiatives besides just throwing it out or burning it up. And there is some examples of, of companies that are upcycling returns like they take sneakers or tennis shoes, like athletic shoes that get returned and they grind them up and turn them into track materials. Mm -hmm. 
that does still take energy and that requires, you know, an investment on the company's part, but it does at least keep it out of the landfill. Um, and we are seeing organizations like Good360 where excess goods and excess returns and materials and things are getting donated to charity and then ideally repurposed to people who need it, post-disaster kind of situations. So there are some good news things, you know, it's a, it doesn't all go to the landfill, but sadly, that's where a lot of those unwanted, over-purchased items end up going. Well, you know, it's rare that I listen to a podcast, Marissa, where my behavior actually changes as a result of it, but it's going to for this. I mean, I have done multiple orders, right? I have, um, you know, done the returns. I'll, you know, I, I, we're not doing that. And, and we're not talking about expensive items. So they are ending up in all of these very poor uh, solutions. I'm going to, uh, one, I'm going to reach out to Good360. And then the other is I'm going to reach out to, um, you bring up disaster recovery, the American Red Cross, and see, I mean, I've got stuff that has never come out of the package. So it clearly oh, wow. is unused. I'm embarrassed. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to be better in the future. I promise. (laughs) Well, don't worry, because you are not alone. $761 billion of returns just last year alone in the U.S. So that's good to hear that you're finding some positive steps to take. But let's shift gears now. Let's move from going in reverse to going forward. And let's take a look at what's happening with demand, right? The originator of all these things that end up being returned. What's going on with demand right now? And we've all seen pictures of shipping containers just stacked up sky high on the docks. And Carly, you had the opportunity to visit the Port of Long Beach in person. What did you see? How bad is it? Well, I've actually been twice recently, which is interesting to see the difference. Once in May 2021, before the Christmas ordering rush started, you know, which started, I guess, September, October, and then again in December, which was six months apart. So first, a little context for people. This is the stuff most people know, even an average Joe like me, that the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, just those two uh, ports alone, handle 40% of all the U.S. container imports. And that's because of the enormous trade that we have with uh, East Asia, primarily with China. 40% of all container imports, the rest come in through Galveston and over on the Seattle and and ports on the East Coast from Europe. Um, Now, in May 2020, when I was there, there were, you could see them, 70 ships were berthed. Wow. The, docks. the docks were overflowing with these containers that just no place to go, no room to maneuver, uh, stuff hadn't been unloaded. Every empty parking lot in Long Beach was full of containers, you know, and I don't know if they were empty, getting ready to go back or if they were full, um, but there were 70 ships, mo- a lot of whom I could see out there waiting to be birthed or are they either birthed or anchored or loitering within about 40 miles. And you could see them from the shore as far as the eye can see. But then that holiday purchasing frenzy started and we an emphasis on the word frenzy. And then I went there in December and you can't see as many ships, but that's because they changed the rules. Uh-huh. You have to pay huge fines if, let's see, you, correct me if I'm wrong, if you, a purchaser, have containers sitting on the dock 
you uh, are fined and if it's supposed to go out by rail and it's not out within was it three or nine days you get massive fines if you're sitting at anchor too close to shore there's massive fines so these ships are there's 111 of them now instead of 70. Wow. you just don't see them and so that's a record uh and that's how many we're actually waiting in november i'm not sure what it is right at the moment and that's seven times as many as the average before the pandemic okay so it's not just like people are not working seven times as much stuff has been ordered the choke points and it's up 79 percent from september so that's the whole christmas rush the choke points the bottlenecks are the shortages of dock workers trucks and rail cars but the cause is this frenzied overconsumption because the docks, the data says they are working at uh, pre-pandemic, near pre-pandemic levels. Wow. Frenzied yeah. consumption. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that, that, that's a great phrase to describe this situation. And I think you hit the nail on the head. The docks are working. The supply chain is working. And that's the thing that kind of hurts my heart. Every time I hear these headlines that say supply chains are broken, Really, it's like the amount of demand increase that we've seen is overwhelming. And yes, the pandemic has certainly led to people being out, um, you know, and it's led to a lot of you have to work in a socially distanced manner. So you can't be fully staffed up at any one given time. So there are problems that the pandemic caused, certainly, but the supply chains are cranking through as much as they can. There's just so much stuff. Well, Carla, what do you think is driving this frenzied consumption? Well, of course, there's the fear of missing out, you know, that if I don't order it now, I'm not going to get it. It won't be available later. And there's been some evidence for that. So, but it's a self-fulfilling prophecy as well, as we all order <laughs> we need and, and hoard it. Um, there's another thing driving it, which is, uh, you know, you mentioned this earlier, the retail therapy. You know, people can't get out, but they can get online and it's one click. You know, that's what made Amazon the biggest store in the world is the one click purchase, buy it now. Um, and, you know, the, again, the, you know, the enough money to do it. The U.S. savings rate is at the highest level since just after World War II. And it's never been this high. And so that's a good thing, right? Yes. But people feel a little, yeah, that's because there is good. There are always silver linings to these things. And there's other silver linings. Retailers have repurposed a lot of these shuttered storefronts for, for warehouses, mm. you know, and ghost kitchens and others. And companies are taking over uh, more control over their mission critical supply chains. And they're, I mean, this is the stuff your average Joe knows, you know, that they're um, trying to uh, onshore or have multiple suppliers. And you've got a whole shtick on supplier relationships that I think is really going to be important here. But what can we do? as you were talking about some of the things we can do with a good 360 and, and donations. One is buy less. Do you really need it? And one reason the shelves are not stocked and inflation is high is, you know, inflation is by definition too much money chasing too few goods is because there's too much non-essentials being purchased. And if you think about people who uh, spend everything they make on food and rent and transportation, the more you can stay out, if you don't have to buy it, don't. And that lets the shelves get restocked with essential items sooner. I mean, this is one of those common uh, commons dilemma and common good. So I, I appeal to your higher order <laughs> needs <which is laughs> to help people. The other, so in buy less or buy more local. 
which uh, you can do in all kinds of ways, including even online, because the more you can do that, you're going to help keep prices down for the essential items like food um, if you're not, if the supply chain is not so clogged up. So those are a couple of things. The beginning is to buy less. And then I will warn you, and you keep telling me you don't know when this is going to happen, all that excess inventory on, to the extent that it's consumer facing, it's retail product, um, is going to go on sale. And boy, there's nothing people like better than a sale. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, where, you know, true. yeah. So try to control oneself. She <laughs> Yeah, and hopefully as we find our way through this pandemic and economies and countries reopen, people can once again start enjoying experiences and, you know, spend their money and their time on those kinds of things instead of just frenzied buying of goods. So we're hoping that, you know, that the light at the end of the tunnel is not an oncoming train. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, these are some great ideas, Carla, and thank you so much for coming on this podcast. And before we go, I want to remind our listeners that we want to hear from you about the impact of these disruptions in supply chains on you. So please click the link in the description and take our 10-minute anonymous survey. Once again, I'm Marisa Brown. Thanks for listening to this APQC podcast. To learn more about our research, please visit apqc.org and we hope you have a great rest of your day.